Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today, I've got David Braun with me. Uh, David Braun is the an impressive bio here. You know, David Braun is the founder and CEO of Capstone Strategic, a leading M&A consulting firm, uh, successfully facilitated over $1 billion in client transactions uh, in over 30 countries in more than 100 industries. He's based out of DC, the metro area. And under David's leadership, Capstone Strategic has been meeting the unique demands of mid-market companies and their corporate growth initiatives for more than 25 years. Um, he's a published author and has lectured to over 40,000 top-level business executives at from Vistage International to TEC Canada and trade associated meetings to private corporate events. So really happy to have David on today. And, um, you know, thanks for taking the time to participate with us. Matt, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, based on, you know, that introduction, tell us a little bit about Capstone. You know, what there's obviously there's a sounds like there's a lot of layers to that onion right there. Explain what's going on. Well, you know, I was a naive young person back in 1995 that, uh, you know, saw the world through a little bit of a different lens. I had a background in, in investment banking and consulting. And, you know, I really didn't like how the industry was served in terms of uh, helping companies. And, and to me, it was very transaction oriented and it was almost perversely, you know, all about doing deals. And so I started my company really with one concept in mind, and that's to help companies to grow uh, primarily through external means, acquisitions, joint ventures, strategic alliances, minority investments, you know, all the things that aren't about how do you organize yourself organically or internally, you know, do you have the right locations? Do you have the right salespeople? But thinking more about, you know, the external ways that you can um, leverage what you've done organically and continue to grow it. And, you know, so we're not transaction oriented. We're much more about helping companies to grow. And so we tend, most of our clients, we tend to work with for decades, not for transactions. So that's just a little bit of my passion uh, and what, really the genesis for why I started uh, Capstone. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, everybody's not... Um, you know, a lot of people are involved in the transaction side of the deal, you know, an acquisition or a disposition or whatever, but to literally get in and kind of be in the management consulting business, I guess you would say, because you're probably trying to, I have a little familiarity with this space. You're trying to find maybe some inefficiencies or some gaps in what they're doing that if they close those gaps would obviously create, you know, a, more well-rounded structured business and kind of help them grow. Um, so seeing that kind of stuff before, sometimes it's technology or sales, or maybe management that's, that's not exactly clicking on all cylinders per se. So familiar with the model. Are there specific types of industries or verticals that, that what you do is maybe more applicable or, you know, creates a better opportunity? That's a great question because I often get asked that question about, you know, so what, what are your industry verticals that you focus on? Because, again, it goes back to a lot of people in industry, you know, maybe five or six industries and they say, hey, here's where our expertise is. And, you know, I was very intentional about being industry agnostic because one of the things that I really, really did not want to do was uh, be drinking other people's Kool-Aid, you know, where we just sort of tell each other what's going on in the industry and everybody's sort of following the leader and, and doing the same thing. 
Um, having said that, I would say more generically, our focus tends to be less on like uh, early stage or emerging companies, more on maturing companies. You know, it's often, as I like to describe it, in many cases, we're dealing with companies that are strong, they have good balance sheets, but they're what I call stuck. You know, they're trying to get to the next level, whatever that may be. And you gave several good examples of that. Maybe it's location or technology or people or brand, but there's no one size fits all. But in many cases, you know, we're not trying to do a turnaround. We're trying to do uh, propelling forward. How do we take a, a company and continue to uh, put it on a growth path uh, for the future? And it's not just about following the leader. Um, we do have a couple industries that we have done, you know, generically more work in than others, lots of manufacturing, food manufacturing, credit unions, and, and what are called the QSO space is another example. Um, so a lot of manufacturing and sort of, again, I'll just say more mature service type uh, industries. Um, but we've done work in a lot of different industries. It's more about companies that are, that are looking to grow, and they'd like to have some help about maybe some new ways of thinking about how they might grow their companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you've exhausted all the ideas internally, you know, and you're like, hey, we need some we need some fresh stuff going on in here. Like our little ecosystem, we burn through all of our good ideas. What what next? Right. So or they don't know how to implement. Right. So like one of the things that I have been saying for years, you know, my job is to help you implement your dreams. You know, you may have these ideas of what you want to do. Like, let's say you're a regional player. Let's say you serve the Southeast and you want to be a national player. You may have that vision and that dream, but you don't really know how to do it. You don't really know how to execute on that. And you want some help refining that, getting some confidence that this is how we can do it. And let's put the right team together and let's make sure we've really thought this through in terms of how we're going to go about implementing that. So, uh, again, it's all about growth. How do we really think through you know, like everything we're doing now is what we call Vision 2030. How do we think through the next 10 years or, or thereabouts in terms of what we're going to do to position our company? Sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. I like that. How do we help help you implement, you know, or achieve your dreams? So, yeah. I, you know, I, I like that because I think I, I think every business owner gets into the whole deal thinking, I got a goal of what this can be, what this can turn into. And it works until it doesn't. And then they're stuck. And then you're like, well, now what? Right. Like I tried every trick I thought I knew. And right. So, and they just and they generally run out of people. I mean, you know, everybody's running thin. They just don't have necessarily the right. It's, it's often not about the money. It's about the right resources. You know, do I have the team that can that right. has the time that has the bandwidth to do this? I mean, I don't know many people who've got a lot of extra bandwidth these days. No, no. Uh, there seems to be a dearth of talent out there. It's hard to find the right people to help, you know, to assemble that team and have somebody be able to implement a new strategy or a new vertical or open new markets for you. Right. It's tough to find that kind of human capital right now. That's right. Yeah, I would agree with that. So let me ask you this question. Uh, it sounds like that growth is really important in in the mindset of the person that's going to ultimately hire you. Do you find that there's a difference between people acquiring you or working with your services on the buy side or the potential sell side? Are people trying to buy in and then say, hey, let's pour some gasoline on this thing. Let's make it really take off. And so I really get the value of being on the buy side of this transaction. There's people that say, you know, hey, let's really ramp this thing up. So we're built for a great exit, right? So is there a difference between the two in your opinion on who you'd rather work with or who you can add more value to? You know, most of the, in most cases, we're working with people that are building it for the future, um, not just building it for the transaction, you know, building it to sell. So I would say in more cases, we're 
having said that, we do work on sell side. So we are helping companies that want to divest all or part of their business. But for most of our clients, you know, let me take a little bit of a step back. You know, kind of the industry folklore, and, and some of this is well-placed, is about, you know, you go in, you make acquisitions, you, you strip the company down, you start making it, you know, uh, all about producing cash flow, not really investing in the future. That's not really what our clients tend to focus in on. That's certainly not what Capstone's focus is. What we tend to focus on is how do we take a company and make it so that it's in the, going in the direction of being able to be here 100 years from now? and continuing to be valuable and viable. And so a big part of that is recognizing that, you know, part of the tools that we bring to the table allow a company to pivot for how the future is, is progressing. So it isn't just about, you know, let me get, let me just get a little bit more market share and let me focus on this quarter or next year. But how do I really start continuing to think about that, what we call, you know, everybody talks about grow or die. I tend to think of it as change or die. How do we continue to change and evolve our company so that we continue to be valuable in the marketplace? And so in most cases, it's for the much, much longer horizon. Um, You know, we've got, I don't know, half a dozen or so family-owned businesses that we work with that have been around for over 100 years. We're trying to make sure that they last for the seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth generations as well. Whether they continue to hold on to them is, is that, you know, that's kind of a, a different discussion, but I want the business to be able to survive. Um, and so that's a big part of what we're doing. And, and part of that is that whole calibration uh, that comes through acquisitions. You know, one of the beauties of acquisition, I'll just say generically acquisitions, because it could be a minority investment or, or joint venture, but just say generically acquisitions is it allows you to calibrate in a way way faster than you can do organically. So, you know, you can say, I want to grow nationally and I want to expand, you know, from Florida to Texas to California to the state of Washington. And you can try to do it. I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's going to take you a while. But if I can buy companies that already have or create relationships with companies that already have, you know, established businesses in those areas, uh, it's going to be a lot faster and it's going to be a lot more precise in terms of the outcome of success. You know, I'm buying, I'm buying winners. I'm buying companies that have already been established in those areas. And so that's the beauty of it. Done correctly, it can really complement your organic uh, growth efforts and, and put you in a position where you're going to be viable and sustainable uh, for in a way that other people would have difficulty competing. Understood. Understood. I think that, you know, I, I don't think everybody considers that as a growth strategy. Most people, when they think of growth, think of kind of organic growth. And you're talking about strategic acquisition for the purpose of growth, right? And right, that's, that's exactly that's right. Not, it's not really the exact same thing, but I don't think everybody's natural reaction is, oh, let's buy a competitor or somebody else. And, and does it have strategic or accretive value to what we've built over here on our side, as opposed to just, well, we can market more and, and see what happens, right? right? And try to try to grow. So I, I like the thought process. You know, and this pandemic has really put a spotlight on this. It's, it's added fuel to the fire that's already been there. But, you know, there's a, to me, there's a, there's a tremendous opportunity for companies to move to the middle. We've got a high concentration of companies that are small. We've got a high concentration of companies that are large. And I think this pandemic has really put the spotlight on that opportunity to move into the middle. Call it 50 to $500 million a year revenue companies, whatever the right size is for the industry that you're in. Sure. But I think there's a real potential there uh, for companies because th- just give it, let me just give it to you in the most basic example. Um, you know, a company wants to have a national supplier. They don't want to have everything outsourced 
They want to insource some things, but they want to know that they've got a supplier that can supply them nationally. So you you now become, a, you know, you get an East Coast presence, a Midwest presence, a Southwest presence, an East Coast presence, a West Coast presence. You're now a national player. So you now create something that's valuable that there's the demand for that would be difficult for someone else to replicate. So I think this pandemic has only really added an accelerant uh, to this idea of, of strong strategic growth uh, in the marketplace, in particular domestically. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't. There's certainly been a shakeup, right? There's certainly been a lot of second guessing around business models and what is considered durable or right, right, or supply chain issues. A lot of things have become exposed as maybe not being as buttoned up as we thought they would be. And I find that really interesting. I mean, look, I know that you know the industry research on how many businesses survive a third generation of transfer, right? So when you start talking about a hundred years of business in six and seven generations, that's a BHAG, you know, big. Harry audacious goal <laughs> to be able to get somebody there, right? Yep. Based on there's a lot of headwinds keeping somebody from 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 reaching a hundred years, right? Um, That's right. And I, and I know those are things that you're acutely aware of. I have that conversation with clients sometimes. I'm like, yeah, how many companies a hundred years ago out of the largest 100 companies that existed that could that had the strongest balance sheet, could recruit the best capital, had great brand names, and all and had most talent, all that all those other things. Do you know how many of those existed? like in the same form a hundred years later. Right. And it's, it's less than 20%. Right. And we know some big examples, you know, like your Polaroids and your Kodaks and stuff where technology just ran them over and changed. Right. And they, and they didn't pivot with it, but I don't think the average person realizes how hard it is to continue to adapt and change a company so that you morph into something that's going to exist for the next 10 years, the next 20 years. And you have to periodically keep doing that repurposing yourself. That's right. And not only that, but especially with family businesses, the, the challenge is as you get further down, you know, there's less direct connection. So, the, you know, the fourth, you mentioned going to the third is really hard, but the fourth and fifth, they're just, they're, it's so far away from them. And there's, and the tree, you know, it's got, you get a lot more branches on that tree. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it becomes, it becomes a little tough to, to manage sometimes, but, but that's the concept. That's the goal. That's the aim is how do we create this so that we have long-term value? Sure, sure. So we mentioned uh, the pandemic changing the landscape a little bit there. So how has that influenced M&A activity based on what you've seen to this point? And how do you think that's going to affect it as we uh, hopefully start to really recover from this pandemic and move it behind us if there's not another 37 variants that's going to hit us? (laughs) We hope not, right? We Uh, we hope not. Let me make a general comment. In general, the pandemic has separated the wheat from the chaff. Uh, through M&A. From a buyer's perspective, this has definitely been a balance sheet issue. You know, so companies that have strong balance sheets have tended to survive. It's not a demand issue. Uh, It's much more on the supply side. You know, I don't know that they're going to be teaching just-in-time inventory in business schools uh, of the same way. Uh, (laughs) And just even how you think about labor. But on the buyer's side, this has really been an opportunity where companies that have strong balance sheets have really moved. They've seen this as an opportunity, not a threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side of the equation, it's accelerated sellers uh, that were already maybe motivated and not necessarily out of weakness. Do not misread what I'm saying. It is not about sellers you know, having fear or weakness and saying, hey, we're going to go ahead and sell. I think it's more uh, actually that strong companies have recognized that these buyers are willing to pay. Valuations are high. Uh, the interest rates are low. And so it's a supply demand issue. So some sellers have also recognized 
that this may be a good opportunity to take some chips off the table. Um, you know, the old saying is, uh, you know, bulls and bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. And I think that many strong selling companies have also recognized that. Now, why do I say that? Because the ones that are weak on either side of that equation, you know, I think this is proving to, I think this is going to be, a, in some cases, a, a real inflection point for them. You know, if they have not continued to invest uh, and they've, they've kind of just sat on the sidelines for this period of time uh, through this pandemic, I think many of them are going to find uh, that post-pandemic, it's going to be a really tough environment. And I think we're already starting to see that now. Sure, sure. No, I, I would agree. So what would be some of the biggest tips that you'd give to somebody on the sell side? If somebody was on the sell side of a transaction, based on the way you look at it, what would be some of the biggest tips you'd give those? Yeah, that's actually a, um, a really good question because lots of times sellers are very focused on valuation alone, but they don't necessarily give thought to, well, how do I improve my valuation? And so one of the simplest examples I like to use is uh, think about selling your house. When you're going to uh, sell your house, you know, everybody feels like their house is the most valuable on the street. But the reality is, is it probably isn't. But how do you make yours more valuable? Well, it's all about curb appeal. You know, so what are some things that I can do? You know, I can I can repaint, I can put new carpet in, I can do some upgrades. Well, it's the same thing with companies. And so there are four primary legs to the stool when we're thinking about it in terms of sell side. Number one, if your audience got nothing out of this other than this one point, as a seller, get audited financial statements. That alone will increase the value of your business. You make it easier for a buyer to have confidence in your numbers, but to also have confidence that you're a company that has gone through some level of due diligence. You know, there's some professional that has had to go through and provide a level of due diligence. Um, so that's, that is a part of it. But in addition to that, just having your financials in, in good order. Uh, the second would be uh, legal and really understanding the kind of, not, it's not that you have to be an expert at it, but it's you need to identify who's going to be the right legal representative for you. And embedded in that is tax. Now, you're a tax expert, so you'll appreciate this, but it's not that uncommon. You end up getting all the way to the point of a letter of intent and, oh, wait a second, now we got to bring some tax people in. And they're saying, hey, there would have been a much better way to do this. And now you've got to go back and re try to recreate this relationship in this deal. Well, let me bring tax people in early on and legal. I mean, they're related. Sure. But let me bring them on early on to help me kind of think through as a seller what what is the right structure? What do I need to be thinking about? What kinds of things can I can I do uh, in advance? Uh, the third one is is valuation. You know, let me have a sense for what my company is worth. You know, we we're pretty good at, at understanding the value of a company. You know, the the unicorns or the hyper growth companies. You know, those those can be challenging because they're they're so rooted in the future. But for most companies, much like we can get down to pretty much a dollar per square foot, what is what your house is going to be worth. You know, we've got a pretty good idea uh, of what the neighborhood of your company is going to be valued. Well, having a sense of that, knowing what the metrics are uh, for your your kind of company in your industry. And then the last one would be, who's going to be the ideal home for your company? And I think too often we think it's a competitor. And I, I will tell you, competitors don't value you necessarily as much as a as someone who wants to get into your space will value you, somebody who wants access to your technologies or wants access to your customers or wants access to your location. Um, so I think we've got to think uh, as a seller bigger uh, about. So those would be the four areas. If, I, if you only remembered one thing, get audited financial statements. 
Yeah, no, I, I audited financials, you know, uh, background checks on principles and stuff like that to make sure that the people that are telling you the stuff that they're telling you that they're, it's coming from a credible source, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Carpe um, diem, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. We do a lot of that on our side. So, you know, look, when I learned about that stuff years ago, I was like, man, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I can, I can listen to what those people can tell me all day, but how do I know they're telling me the truth? I need a third party fact checker in that whole right. deal, right? That's why we have home inspections on houses when we sell them, right? We want to validate the same concept. Trust, but verify, right? Yeah, Trust, right. but verify. Right. You know, uh, you make some great points. I don't think a lot of people understand the valuation of what they have. I don't think a lot of people understand. And from a structural standpoint with the legal and the tax thing, you know, I think very few people, when they they purposely structure their business in a way to maximize the value from a tax exit, I don't think people go in thinking, if I ever sold this, what would that look like? And how would be the smartest way to do it? So you're right. You, if you're going to change the structure, the entities and some other elements, you need to start working on that before the 12th hour. So That's I would right. agree. So great tips on the sell side. So let's pivot. Let's look at that from the other side. So what if we were on the buy side, you know, and and we're trying to enter in a transaction? What are those? uh, Maybe there's another four golden rules there with one being more important than the other. Yeah. So it's interesting because the buy side has got a very different kind of perspective. Um, There are some very significant differences. One of the biggest ones is, uh, as you could tell from my comments on the sell side, it's much more introspective. Right. It's much more thinking about me and, and what things I can do. From a buyer's perspective, I got to be much more focused on being uh, outwardly perspective. What's going on in the market? Uh, what's going on in the markets that, that I want to operate on? So one of the first things that we talk about is, uh, from a buyer's perspective, is get away from just being thinking about a company that you want to acquire. One, one of the most common mistakes that I see for buyers is there's a company that's for sale. They come knock on their door and now all of a sudden all the wheels start spinning because we think this is an interesting company and let me react to it. And, you know, it's almost like Pablo. We all of a sudden start, you know, reacting to this feeding time of, of let's look at this company. And we start having conversations about, you know, maybe this is a good deal. Maybe we can get a better deal. Maybe we can fix this company. We can do all that. But is that really the right company? You know, again, we're reacting to it. What I would rather do is is think much more proactively. So it starts with who are you as a company and and what is your DNA? I don't care what your product is. I I care more about what it is that you do and what is your DNA and what are you trying to become? If if you could describe for me 10 years from now what your company looks like, and if if I could challenge you to start that conversation without mentioning anything about financials, because for most people that work in your company, or are affiliated with your company, the fact that you want to grow from 50 to 100 million or 200 million or a billion or whatever the number is, that's not what gets them out of bed. That's not what gets them to be passionate. What gets them to be passionate is when they can say, this is what we do. This is how we help the industry. This is the problems that we solve so that when they get up, they can get excited about how they contribute to solving those problems. So describe it in a way of what you do and for whom you do it and how you're going to go about doing it, you know, and the passion that you have. You know, it's that it's the old analogy of, you know, are, is American or United Airlines, are, are they in the, in the plane business? No, they're in the dream business or vacation business, right? They take you to vacations. And, you know, so it's that kind of kind of concept, you know, how are we excited about what it is that we're doing uh, for the place that we serve? The other couple key things is, is I uh, encourage people to think about realistically, what is your risk tolerance? 
So it's one thing to say, I'll go back to my, my very basic example of I want to be a national player. Okay, how much money are you willing to lose? Because what I mean by that is that doesn't come for free. So are you willing to put a marker on buying a company? And if so, what are you willing to lose? What if it doesn't go well? Um, because not everything does. So, you know, you really want to have, because everybody says that they've got a lot of risk tolerance and they're willing to do it. But when, when you actually try to kind of get them to articulate that and quantify it, it can be difficult. Because I think it's really important to have that sense. I've seen companies move very far along in the process and then they get stuck in the LOI stage because they get that, that burning sense in their gut. Like, do I really want to, am I really willing to put this much money at risk? Uh, and then the last part is, is to do what we call plan for yes. What happens if this dream of yours, uh, you find the right companies and they say yes? Are you ready? Because again, unlike selling companies, when you buy a company, when you are actually closing on that transaction, that's really the beginning of the process. That's when, because now you've transitioned money from me to Matt, and now I own Matt's company. Now the meter starts. I've got to get you to go in the direction, you and your company to go in the direction I'm trying to head. That's when it's really hard. So am I really prepared for what I call yes? where we keep moving further in the process because the integration part uh, is, is really the most difficult part of the process. None of the pieces are easy, but that's the hardest part. So I really want to be thinking through if, if this is going to work out and I find companies and they say, yes, what is that really going to, am I really ready? Sure. I heard some interesting things in there. If you take money out of the equation, you, you motivate people to grow by culture, right? That's what I heard, culture and fit. Do we all have a strategic alignment of what we're trying to accomplish here? Right. Uh, the risk tolerance, I always say, is the juice worth the squeeze. You know, <laughs> just because you could doesn't mean yeah. that you should, right? right? We could acquire that company, but should you? Does it really make sense to do it? And after you do all that, are you ready to put the boots on and go to work? Because that's really the, just the first step in the equation, right? That's right. So I think that makes a lot of sense. So great feedback there. I think those are some great takeaways from people on the buy side and sell side. So, you know, I would say that I think, you know, maybe um, I'm sure that you're aware of this because you're in the industry. Maybe the listeners are or aren't. But one of the biggest issues going on out there right now are of privately held businesses looking to potentially transition to second, third, fourth generation or whatever. And these owners don't have a documented succession plan in place and maybe even don't have um, family members of themselves that want to be involved in that. Like I, I particularly worked with a business owner a few years ago, uh, $25 million business um, selling the metal doors that went inside of bathroom stalls, right? So that you don't have to look at some person next to you. Yeah. And wanted his son to be in the business and finally goes, my son does not want to be in this business. He has zero interest in it whatsoever. How do I let my business persist, right? And continue to move forward without me. But yet, how do I provide the lifestyle that I want for my kids to provide, you know, um, because it's not going to be running my business. Right. So he really struggled with that emotionally. So is, is that a big challenge and how do you help families work through that as a solution? Um, it is, it's not only is it a big challenge, it is a huge challenge. Um, the last major transition of ownership that we had was world war II transitioning to baby boomers. Now we have baby boomers transitioning to whatever the next generation is, millennials or Z or X or Y, whatever it may be for them. The challenge that we have is that different from World War II transitioning to baby boomers, um, the baby boomers either don't have children 
where they don't have children that are capable or interested in running the business. So we now have, it's estimated that we have close to 60% of owners of smaller privately held companies in the U.S. are over the age of 60. Mm. Over the age of 60. And I just saw another study on this that said 72% of them don't have a succession plan. So one of the things that I remind people is at some point, the parents are going to get involved. Mother nature and father time. You may not like it, but it is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And one of the worst things that can happen is that the owners don't plan for it. And then mother nature gets involved. And now we're trying to scramble, you know, when you're selling companies where the owners and leaders of the businesses have passed away, it's you right there, you've decreased the value of the business, but do it on your terms. So for owners, I encourage them to be prepared to do it on their terms. It's painful. It's tough to think about. Um, they do have a number of different options. You know, they can do an ESOP, employee stock ownership plan. They could do a, a management buyout. They can sell. They can do an orderly wind down to close, just close down the business if that's the right thing to do for them. But part of it is, is, is really understanding what their options are and then starting to put together a path for doing that. For a lot of owners, one of the challenges that I find is, is that it's daunting to them. They really don't have a good plan in, in place. They've never done it before. And this is also the fabric of their life. This is how they define themselves. And for many of them, I don't know what they don't know what they're going to do if they were retired. And so that that's a big part of the challenge. And I don't think many of them are going to solve this riddle themselves. They are going to need some third-party advice. They're going to need someone to help them think through this help starting to put together the options. And the last thing I would say to it, when I'm dealing with owners, in particular family-owned businesses, um, what I always tell them when we get close to the closing, be prepared. This is a bit like a funeral. And the signing is often, it feels like you're, you're at a wake, you know, you're, you're saying goodbye. And that's a very tough process. You know, it's one thing to be the CEO of a company. It's another thing to have been the founder and your family has been involved in this business perhaps for generations. And so you're now in effect selling your baby. It's a very, very different process. And so I just encourage people that are in that position to not, you know, not putting your head in the sand. That doesn't make the problem go away. You've got to figure out how you're going to go about doing this and do it while you can do it while you're healthy. Um, because when you are in particular, if someone is, is disabled, you know, they have a stroke or something God sure. forbid, like that, it's really tough um, to move the process forward. So just do it on your terms. I think you owe it to your family, to your employees, to your customers, to your suppliers. I think you owe it to yourself um, to really be much more proactive about um, thinking about the next chapter for the ownership of your company. Yeah, I tell it's great feedback. I tell clients all the time, if you're stuck in a difficult situation, you can stick your head in the sand if you want, but I can still see your butt. That didn't make the problem go away, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, I like that analogy. I hadn't quite visualized it that way, Matt. But I think the concept is in alignment. <laughs> yeah, you know, hey, and you know, the other thing you say is, you know, a lot of people, this isn't what they do. This is who they are. This is part of their identity, right? And that's for somebody that has a job and somebody that's not a business owner, it's hard for them to connect with that idea, that concept. But a business owner, somebody that built it, this is not something that they do. This is who they are. This is their core being. It's been part of their life's purpose. And an employee can resign and go retire. An owner can't. They don't just resign and go retire. I mean, they've got to do something with that business. Got to do something. Got to do something with it. 
Well, hey, I love what we had here today. Um, we're running a little bit towards the end of our hour here, whatever. But, um, you know, is there anything else that we didn't discuss that I didn't ask you about that you'd like to throw in? And and then on top of that, you know, where can listeners find you? Because it's not every day you you bump into a growth expert, right? <laughs> Buying a new business, want to make it grow, want to make it grow before you ultimately look for an exit, you know, uh, transition it to the next you know generation. So having a growth expert on your team, somebody that's helped, you know, dozens or hundreds of people get to the finish line in what they're ultimately trying to accomplish is extremely important. So, so how do people find you? Well, first of all, Matt, thank you for having me today. Uh, this is, I think this is a very relevant conversation for folks. This is what's really going on in the marketplace right now. This is the heartbeat of America, in my opinion, because we are at the precipice of a major transition of ownership of companies. So for both buyers and sellers, I think this is a really important conversation. Uh, so thank you for having me. Uh, if people have more, more comments or questions or want to learn more, I encourage them to go. Probably the easiest way is to go to our website, uh, capstonestrategic.com. Um, and uh, we've got lots of information there. We put on a monthly webinar. I'm happy to address questions that people may have. Um, again, this is an important conversation. Let's keep talking about it. And let's keep getting people educated on, on options so that people can make um, you know, informed decisions. Good stuff. Well, David, I appreciate the time and um, we'll make sure that we include all the contact information with it. But thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 